So, as a refresher, we will be in Mark chapter 5. You've had plenty of time to turn there. First, as a little background to the text we're going to be looking at this morning, I want to read uh, one of the accounts, one of the Christmas story accounts in Scripture that doesn't get a lot of play this time of year to see a connection between what we just celebrated on Wednesday and what's happening in the text we're going to see this morning. So don't, don't turn there. You can just listen as I read from the Christmas account in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. I think it's probably easy for you to imagine why this is one of the less popular Christmas story texts in the Bible, since it contains a dragon waiting to devour a baby. Right? This, this wouldn't play very well in a children's Christmas program. Um, my guess is that your nativity set probably has a donkey and some sheep, a camel, probably no dragon in the nativity set. And yet this passage shows us something really important going on the night of Jesus' birth, something we shouldn't forget. That we, It reminds us that Jesus was born into a great conflict, that it wasn't just angels who beheld Jesus' birth, but that actually there's this... So what we have here, John shows us this woman in the pains of labor, probably not Mary, probably the nation of Israel, producing the Christ, the Messiah, this king who it says is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, And there's this dragon, this red dragon, which the Bible identifies as the serpent, who is the devil or Satan. And he is just lying in wait for this child to be born, ready to attack, ready to consume him because he knows that he has come to make war on him. And we know from the Gospel of Matthew that as soon as King Herod found out that a child had been born who was being called King of the Jews, he issued an order that all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and younger, should be killed. I mean, it's absolutely horrific. And, and Joseph and Mary have to take Jesus and flee to Egypt. They have to become refugees just to keep him alive, to protect him. He was born into a war, into a conflict between God and the devil. And the devil knew that he was the one to come to crush him. And so he didn't even stop there just with, Herod in Bethlehem. We know that when Jesus was baptized, he went into the wilderness and the devil tried to tempt him, tried to make him sin, to turn him from God's mission. We know that the devil was the one who incited Judas to betray him to his death. So what we need to see is that Jesus' ministry isn't just about loving people and giving us a good example. It's, it's this conflict, it's this campaign against spiritual forces of evil, against personal spiritual evil beings. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to push back the kingdom of darkness by advancing the kingdom of God. And this, I think, um, this is one of the harder things for modern Western people 
to swallow about the New Testament. That, that Jesus has this basic assumption that what, what you can see and touch, what you can sense with your senses, isn't all that's real. That there's not just a material universe, but there's a spiritual world and there are spiritual beings, good spiritual beings who serve God, called angels, who are sent out to be good to God's people, and that there are angels who have rebelled against God, who have turned against him and against humanity, whose aim in existence is to separate God and people called demons. This is part of Jesus' framework. You hear it all the time. In fact, you you don't even really notice it, I don't think, as much until you start preaching through the Gospels. And then all of a sudden, every week, every time, every time I'm up here, it's the devil and it's demons and it's Jesus in conflict with them. It's everywhere. And I think it's, it's hard for modern Western people to, um, to take seriously, I think, if we're honest. And, and there are, in lots of places in the world and for most of human history, people haven't questioned whether there are spiritual beings that we can't see. Their main concern is, can Jesus do anything about them? Can, Gina, can Jesus save us from these spirits? But I think to a lot of people now in this area of the world, it seems superstitious and um, anti-scientific. It seems pre-modern. It seems, um, I don't know, it seems just, it's awkward and it's silly. And it seems like we can do without that. But is it really wise to dismiss it so easily? I mean, is there any finding of science that has actually precluded the possibility of spiritual world and spiritual beings? I'm not aware of anything. And, and should we just discard the, the testimony of Scripture, thousands of years of church history, and the contemporary experience of people all over the world just because it seems a little silly? Or could it be that verbal Kint in The Usual Suspects was right when he said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist? Certainly, if there is no God, then we don't need to worry about angels and demons, right? If there is no God, we can toss out Christianity altogether. But if there is a God, if there is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent spirit that we believe in, why not lesser spirits? And if there are good spirits, if if there are angels, why not demons? Why does this seem so far from our experience? Um, The passage we're going to look at this morning is one of the most detailed accounts in the Bible of an encounter between Jesus and, and evil spirits, of an exorcism, in fact. And in it, we can see on a small scale the cosmic battle that Jesus has come to wage on our behalf. So now you can turn to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20, and follow along as I read. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. He broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. 
Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. We're going to see in this text three things. First, what evil does to people, what Jesus does to evil, and how we should respond to a great deliverance from evil. So first, what evil does to people. One of the most immediately striking aspects of this passage is this portrait it paints of this man who had been oppressed by demons. And we don't get, we don't get a graphic description like this anywhere else of someone consumed with spirits inside. So the effect of these demons on him is, first of all, dehumanizing. He's become almost an animal. He's, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that he's, he's totally unclothed, and he has been for a long time, and he lives among the tombs. He lives among the dead. He's so violent that people in the area have tried to bind him with shackles and chains, but he's become so superhuman strong that he breaks the chains. He breaks the shackles that they have no protection against him anymore, and he's become this wild man living out in the, in the distant places in the tombs. So he's become dehumanized. He's almost not even human anymore. Secondly, uh, evil has it's dehumanized him and it's alienated him. So he's not living in community as he was made to do. He's been driven out by the spirits to live by himself, and his only company are dead people. He lives among the tombs. And the evil afflicting him torments him. We see that he's crying out from this psychological anguish. He's crying out on the mountains and cutting himself with stones. He's bruising his own body. Later in the Gospel of Mark, we'll encounter a boy who has a demon, and the demon will throw the child into fire, and he'll throw him into water to try to kill him. The evil is is self-destructive. And worst of all, the evil has enslaved him. He's no longer in control. The demons make him do what he does. When Jesus asks him his name, it's the demons who speak. He's become a complete slave in his own body, a prisoner in his own body. So what does evil do to people? Ultimately, evil robs people of God's goodness. This man has ceased to enjoy all the good things that God created for humanity. God made us in his image to think and to communicate, to live in community, to work in creation, ultimately to have communion with him. And this man has been robbed of all these good things by these spirits that have taken up residence in his body. And I've been careful to describe this as not just what evil spirits do to people, but what evil does to people, because it applies more broadly. It'd be easy to look at this and feel great sympathy for this man and to think, but this has nothing to do with me. 
I don't have a legion of demons living in me. I don't run naked through cemeteries as a practice. I'm, I'm totally free from this situation. But are we free from this? The Bible teaches that even though this is an extreme case, that the devil is at work to push all people this direction. Given his way, this is what he would have everyone live like. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that every person who has not trusted Jesus follows the will of Satan, whom he calls the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So those who don't obey God, the devil is at work in them, maybe not overpowering them like this, but influencing, tempting, prodding. And the Apostle John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. You don't have to be overpowered like this to be influenced. Nor are Christians immune from this. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Peter says that your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. So what we see in scripture is that when we sin, when we do evil ourselves, we open the door. We give an opportunity to the devil. We open ourselves to his influence, even believers. If we don't actively resist him by drawing near to God, we open ourselves to this. Whenever we sin, whenever we disobey God, we participate in evil and we experience on a small scale what this man experienced to an extraordinary degree. So when we sin, we're on a small scale dehumanized. We become a little bit less like humans and a little bit more like animals. Because we were made in the image of God. We were made not to just obey whatever we want, whatever our passions compel us to do. We were made to know God and to obey him and to know what's right and wrong and to walk in those ways. But when we sin, we're just doing whatever we feel like. So we, so we, we drink as much as we want and we eat as much as we want, no matter what God says. And we give ourselves sexually to pornography or to people who we aren't married to because it feels good because we want to. We become, we get angry and we just rage at people and yell and scream and throw things. Not because we're doing what God says, but because we feel like it. We become a little less human and a little more animal. We just do it because it's what we want. When we sin, we become alienated from other people. We serve ourselves. We don't serve them. And distance comes into our relationships. We refuse to ask, to ask for forgiveness when we sin. We refuse to extend forgiveness when it's needed. We nurse bitterness in our hearts and we, just, we, dr- we drift further and further from the community for which we were made. When we sin, we invite torment and self-destruction. We don't maybe cut ourselves with stones, but we choose to go away from joy. We choose cheap thrills over the lasting satisfaction of walking with God. And so many things that we do when we sin work against our bodies as well. Too much alcohol will destroy your liver. Too much TV will lead to weight gain, lack of energy. Too much work will exhaust you. Too much exercise will wear out your joints. Whenever something becomes more important to you than God, it works against your joy. It works against your physical body. It invites self-destruction. And most seriously when we sin, we offer ourselves to enslavement. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Just as this man eventually became a prisoner in his body, so when we give ourselves to sin, we offer ourselves to someone else's power over us. 
the longer you indulge lust or greed or pride or self-righteousness, the harder it becomes to resist it the next time, the more you give yourself over to it. The more you feed it, the stronger it becomes, and you almost despair of ever changing, of becoming different than you are. All evil, all sin, it robs us of God's goodness, of the good things God made for us to enjoy. So do you take evil seriously? Do you take sin seriously? It seems to me like, and I know this is true of me, and I think it's true of other Christians too, we can, we can treat evil as a distasteful, but occasionally useful tool in the toolbox. Like we don't want to make a habit of it. We don't want to do it all the time. But it's nice to have the option sometimes to really bite someone with our words when they deserve it or, um, or to, to you know, break laws when it's convenient to us, to occasionally way overdo it on the alcohol, but just for a special occasion. We want the option to be there to just indulge ourselves a little. But the author of Hebrews warns us that we can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, that sin lies, that it deceives us, that it tells us it can give us everything we want. And if we believe it's lies, if we're deceived, we become harder and harder and harder to it, that it's harder to resist. And, and sin, committing sin, we, we might get what we want for the moment. We might get ahead at work. We might win the heart of someone we're trying to pursue. We might feel really good for a little while. But sin deceives us. It doesn't warn us that it leads to slavery, that it takes over. So this is a bleak portrait. And I appreciate you guys hanging in there. This is a bleak portrait of what evil can do to a person, to you and to me. But I think Mark makes it this bleak because he wants us to be amazed all the more at what comes next. So we've seen what evil does to people. Now we'll see what Jesus does to evil. Having shown us a picture of this man's life, Jesus, or Mark shows us this confrontation between Jesus and this man. We see in verse 2 that when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So as soon as the man saw him, he just broke into a run, came and fell down before him. Jesus is so much greater than these spirits that even though they hate him, they have to kneel in his presence. But it doesn't mean they don't still try desperately to get the upper hand. What the demon says in verse 7 is so interesting. It says, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not, do not torment me. So he knows who this is. He, he, he can just see that this is Jesus, Son of the Most High God, and yet he thinks that he can command him, that he can boss him around. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He knows that Jesus can torment him, and he thinks that maybe he can get the upper hand just by saying something. And what's interesting about this is, at the time, the way that people would cast out demons, the way that they would do an exorcism, is first they would name the demon, they would call it by name, and they would appeal to a higher power to cast him out. And if you see, this is exactly what the demon's trying to do. He's saying, I know who you are, your name is Jesus, and I appeal to God for you to leave me alone. He's, the demon is trying to exercise Jesus. And Jesus has none of it, right? This, this man is trying to get Jesus to do something, but instead Jesus asks him a question. What is your name? And the demon says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion was a technical term at the time of the Roman Empire. It meant thousands of soldiers. It meant a whole army. 
So over time, an army of demons has taken up residence in this man, and yet even at army strength, they are no match for Jesus. They're no match. They switch right away from commanding to begging. They beg him, don't send us out of the region. Send us to the pigs. And Jesus permits it. With a word, the demons are gone, and this man is completely restored. Years of agony and enslavement are over in a moment. So the men see this. They run off and they tell everyone about it. And when people come to see what's happened, they find the man, it says, sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. He's been rehumanized. All of that animalness, all of the exclusion, all of the torment, the self-destruction, all of it is gone just with a word from Jesus. So what does Jesus do to evil? He completely overpowers it. He completely overpowers it. Where does he get that power? Just before this encounter, Jesus and his disciples have been crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat. And you probably remember that this huge storm comes up and they get well, scared and they wake Jesus up and say, we're going to die, can't you do something? And Jesus quiets the storm with a word. He says, peace, be still. The storm stops, the waves stop, the wind stops, and the men say, who is this that wind and waves obey him? And that question, who is this, hangs over this passage too. Who is this that can overpower an army of demons with a word? Go. I give you permission. Get out of here. And they're gone. Who is this? Who but God himself could have this power? Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the God-man. This is how he's able to overpower evil. And so too is he able to do this for us. His power has not changed in 2,000 years. So how are you experiencing evil right now? Is it evil outside of you? Are you the object of gossip at work? Are you being wronged by a spouse or an ex-spouse? Are you being excluded by family or friends? I don't at all mean to suggest that any wrong you're experiencing is because someone's totally overpowered by demons. What, I'm, what I mean to suggest is that any evil you're experiencing Jesus is greater than, that Jesus has authority over. He can do something about it. He's greater than any evil in the world. He may not remove the evil you're experiencing, but I think the fact that he can, that he's so great that if you ask him, he can, I think that should be of great comfort because if he does remove it, great. And we can praise him. If he doesn't, it's not because he's not too strong to save. It's because he has something he wants to get done in your life through it. But the fact that he's this great means we should never lose hope. But maybe your main experience of evil right now isn't evil outside you. Maybe your main experience of it right now is evil inside you. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's anger against your family. You know you should be loving towards them, but it just seems like time and time again, you snap and you blow it and you rage against your spouse or your kids. Maybe you refuse to forgive someone who's hurt you deeply. You know you should, but you just keep replaying their betrayal and feeding your bitterness. Jesus can deal with that too. He can deliver you from temptation. He can deliver you from the tempter. He's greater than any evil. He can break sin's power in your heart. He came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. He came to atone for sin. He came to forgive. He came to overcome it. It's what he loves to do. So this encounter between Jesus and this miserable man afflicted by demons is a picture of what Jesus has done for all Christians. 
For all those who have turned from sin and trusted in him, just like this man, we've been delivered from enemies too powerful from us, from sin and death and the devil. Just like this man, we were delivered not because we came to him and we made ourselves presentable to him, but because he saw us in our misery and had compassion, because he came to us and set us free. He had mercy on us. He's greater than any evil outside you or inside you. So we've seen what evil does to people and what Jesus does to evil. But before we move to the last point, I want to answer a question that might be lingering from, for some of you, which is, what is the deal with the pigs? Right? This is like nowhere else do you see this kind of thing where Jesus casts a demon out of a person and then puts it into an animal. So what is the deal with the pigs? There's a couple reasons for why this is in here, I think. The first is it shows conclusively that the spirits have gone. Right? If they just kind of gone into the air, this guy could easily think, what if they're just hiding in here? What if, what if they're still here? What if I'm not safe? But when he saw the pigs suddenly out of nowhere stampede away, he realized they've left me for good. Second, it shows the greatness of his deliverance. There were enough demons in a single person to cause a herd of 2,000 pigs to stampede into the sea. But Jesus cast all of them out with a single word. It shows his power. And we also know from elsewhere in Scripture that demons hate to be homeless, right? As soon as they leave one place, they're searching for somewhere else to take up their residence. And so these pigs kind of act as a lightning rod, right? Jesus, to protect everybody else in the area, these herdsmen, the, the disciples, he cast the pigs into the, the demons into the pigs, and then every human being is safe. But most significantly, I think, the reason, the most significant reason is because Jesus sets up a choice for people in the region about how they're going to respond to this. What do they care more about? That 2,000 pigs were destroyed? That would have been a lot of money. Do they care more about that or that a person made in God's image was restored to full humanity? What's more important to them? And in the divide in their responses, we'll see the choice before us. So thirdly and finally, how we should respond to a great deliverance from evil. So in the story, once these herdsmen see what happens, they run and start telling everybody about it. Everyone has to know about this incredible thing that happened because probably this man was well-known in the area, right? You don't, you don't run naked through the tombs and break chains apart without, you know, earning a couple headlines. People began to know that this is an area you stay away from. You don't let your kids go near the tombs by the sea. They knew about this guy. He was famous in the area. They may not have known about Jesus because this was a Gentile area. You can see that, I mean, they have a herd of pigs, right? The pigs are unclean to Jews. They would not have a herd of pigs. And when this man goes home, he doesn't go into Israel. He goes, it says, to the Decapolis, which was a league of 10 cities loyal to Rome. It was a Gentile area. They might not have heard anything about Jesus yet, but they knew this man. And so when they heard that this guy had come in a boat across the sea, and with a word, he had set this man free who had been oppressed for years and years, they had to come and see it. So they come and they see him sitting in his right mind. And when they hear about what has happened, it says that they were afraid. Just like the disciples, when Jesus calmed the storm, were afraid. Who is this that can tame an untamable storm? So these people are afraid. Who can bind the unbindable man? Who is this? And it says, they begged him to leave their region. 
they begged him to go away. But they're not the only ones begging, right? Because then as Jesus is getting into the boat, right, he answered their prayer. He's going to go away. As he gets into the boat, the man who's been set free begs him to go with him. He begs him to be with him. So some of them are begging Jesus to be far from them. This man is begging Jesus to be near to him. Why the difference in response? Well, certainly part of the reason they want him gone is because they're afraid of the unknown, right? Who, whatever power can cast out this many demons, can do this kind of thing, we want to keep that at arm's length. We don't know what he's going to do next. But there's something more happening here, and I think it's because of the pigs, right? It says that when they were told what Jesus had done for the man and what happened to the pigs, that's when they began to beg. Jesus' deliverance cost them a great deal of money. Because 2,000 pigs, that's a lot, that's a lot of value. If they would have had to raise those pigs from a young age. It would have been worth a ton when they were slaughtered. And Jesus just threw them into the sea like they were nothing. And so they begin to wonder, what else is it going to cost us if he stays? What if he keeps doing good? What else are we going to lose? Is it really worth 2,000 pigs to have one man set free? And so they beg him, please don't help anymore. Please just go away. They were preoccupied with the cost to them of the deliverance. But the man who begged to be with him was preoccupied with the deliverance itself. He knew what had happened to him. He knew his misery for years before Jesus came. He knew that Jesus had mercy on him. And he knew that the mercy was costly to Jesus. Right? When Jesus set him free, it was at the cost of being rejected by everyone else and sent away from the region. Whatever Jesus came into town to do, he didn't get to do because they put him right back on his boat and sent him away. So Jesus' mercy to him was costly to Jesus. It was at great expense to himself. So this man knew that Jesus was powerful enough to set him free from his oppressors and that he was good enough, that he was merciful enough to do it even though it cost him rejection and whatever purpose he came to do. Wouldn't you trust someone like that? I promise you that I am not embarrassed to tell you that I have just recently enjoyed rereading Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, which, if you're not familiar, is the classic English love story about Mr. Fitzwilliam Darcy and Miss Elizabeth Bennet, who have a terrible, start off on a terrible foot in their first acquaintance, and then spend the rest of the book figuring out that they're perfect for each other. And one of the key turning points for Elizabeth in her affections for Mr. Darcy, is when she realizes, when she's told that secretly he paid a huge amount of money to protect her family from being implicated in a great scandal involving one of her sisters. He did it secretly, he did it with no thought of reward, and he did it out of unbelievable generosity to her. And she realized that she had totally misunderstood him, that she didn't really know what kind of guy he was. It changed her heart. We trust people who love us sacrificially, who show mercy at great expense to themselves. This man knew very little about Jesus, but he knew he could trust him and he wanted to be with him. But Jesus didn't permit him to come. He didn't permit him to join his disciples. That wasn't the answer that he was looking for. That wasn't the response he wanted, although it was a good response. The response to which Jesus called him was costly obedience. Instead of following him, Jesus wanted him to go home, a place where he probably hadn't been for years, to go home and to tell his friends, in verse 19, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. 
He wanted him to obey him, to go away, to, to be a missionary to his people. And that would have been incredibly costly to this guy. Because if you think about it, this man had been oppressed by demons for years. Now he knows there's one person on earth who can protect me. There's someone who can set me free. There's someone who I know can keep me safe. And this person is telling him, go away. He has to go away from the presence of the person he knows can keep him safe. It would take incredible faith in Jesus to obey him at that kind of cost. It was costly obedience, but he went. And verse 20 says, He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Because he was willing to obey at cost to himself, Jesus' reputation traveled where Jesus wasn't allowed to go. They wouldn't let him come and preach. They wanted him away from the region. But this man was obedient, and so Jesus was known nonetheless. The message wasn't hindered. I think that Mark shows us these two responses, begging him to go away, begging to be with him, and then obeying him at great cost because he wants us to make our own decision about how to respond to his great deliverance. Because Jesus has made a great deliverance for everyone who trusts in him. Jesus has has sought everyone who trusts in him. He has brought them to himself And it has been at great cost to him. He has given them eternal life at the cost of his own life on the cross. On the cross, Jesus suffered God's wrath. He suffered God's anger against sin so that everyone who trusts in him can walk free, can know God, can belong to him forever with no condemnation. It's a great deliverance at great personal cost. How should we respond to such a great deliverance? Will we, like the people of the region, be preoccupied with the cost to us? Will we think of what it'll cost us to turn from an evil lifestyle, to turn from sin, and to obey Jesus? It might cost us a relationship in which we'd invested a lot of hope, a relationship we thought might lead to marriage. It might cost us the respect of our family or our friends. It might cost us our livelihood if God calls us to another place or calls us to another job. There's nothing off limits to Jesus, nothing he can't call us to give up in order to love him with an undivided heart? Will we be preoccupied with the cost and keep us from obedience to him? Are you willing to bear that cost in order to experience the kind of freedom this man has? Freedom from his oppressors, freedom to obey Jesus in anything. I mean, we, unlike this man, we don't even need to leave Jesus in order to obey him, right? By the Spirit, he's with us always, even to the end of the age. He's with us in our costly obedience, working out in our lives what's pleasing in his sight. So we can, we can be like the people and keep Jesus at a distance and respond by being overwhelmed with the cost. Or we can be like this man who is more preoccupied with the deliverance than the cost. More preoccupied with what it costs Jesus than what it costs himself. Will we reflect at length on how Jesus has loved humanity? How he left perfect communion with God to be born into a poor family on earth. How he took on himself human temptation and human suffering. How he lived without committing a single sin, but was still executed in our place so we could be free. Will we reflect and remember how he loved us before the world began, how he sought us when we never would have sought him and drew us to trust in him almost in spite of ourselves? And remembering all that, will we choose to obey him at cost? Not to earn salvation, but out of gratitude for it, out of faith in the one who has done so much for us. Will we heed the admonition of Romans 12.1? 
I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, in view of what God has done, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. By God's mercies, in view of his great deliverance, offer yourselves to him. Obey him at cost. I'm not sure what it will look like for you. I'm not sure how costly obedience will look for you. If you're not a Christian, it starts with repenting, with turning from what you're living for, turning from what you're worshiping that isn't him, whatever's keeping you from him, turning and putting your trust in him, believing in his sacrifice and in his power to save. But if you're already a Christian, I don't know what it'll look like. It might mean breaking off a relationship that doesn't glorify God. It might mean confessing to another Christian a pattern in your life you've been concealing because you're ashamed of it. It might mean, as it did for this man, going home and telling your friends how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. But the one thing that's sure is, it's the path to joy. To, to turn from obedience, to, to live in sin, is to choose to go back to slavery. It's to choose to go back to the oppression that we were in before. But to obey him, it's to choose to walk in freedom and the joy of nearness to our God and Savior. So let's pray for God's help. Our Father, we pray that you would help us in light of your mercies, in view of what you've done, that you have done everything necessary to bring us to yourself, that you would help us to be like this man, to obey Jesus at cost, to do what he's called us to do. I pray that you would, that you would help us, that you would show us in your word what it means to obey you, where we need to where we need to obey you today and this week, and that you would give us grace by your Spirit to be in awe of your sacrifice and in our deliverance and to obey you at great cost in pursuit of the joy of being near to you and bringing you glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.